Um, I'm going to bring today's reading, um, which is Daniel 5, all of Daniel 5. Um, so I'll make a start. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So that, the kings and his, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the kings and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed round his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, had fa was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father brought, uh, my, <clears throat> one of the exiles my, my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed round your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your Majesty, the Most High God, gave your father. Your Majesty, the, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor, because of the high position he gave him. All the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted, and those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, 
He was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God was sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Telek, Parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Telek, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed round his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Phil, for that mammoth reading this morning. Let's just pray as we begin. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning, and we pray that in the few minutes that we have together, uh, you would open our eyes, and Lord, you would speak to us this morning, uh, you would speak to our hearts, for each person gathered here, we would be able to hear what your Holy Spirit has to say to us this morning, that we would leave this place changed in some way because of what you have to say to us. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus, amen. Well, um, I'm sure you know, but there's a number of words and phrases and idioms that we use in everyday language, either written um, or spoken, that actually had their origin um, in the Bible. For example, when we talk about um, retaliation uh, to someone, we might say something about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that comes straight from uh, the, the book of Exodus at the beginning of the Old Testament. There's other phrases like, by the skin of my teeth which comes from um, Job. Um, and Jesus uses uh, some in the New Testament, talks about going the extra mile, which is something that we say uh, quite commonly, or the blind leading the blind, coming from one of his other parables. And today in Daniel chapter 5, we come across another one. I don't know whether you spotted it in there, what the phrase that you know, we, we might use in everyday language that's in uh, the chapter today. Thank you, Dan, over there. Someone was awake. And he said his bit, and now he's left. But um, the writing's on the wall, something that we might say when we see something that is imminent, something usually pretty dreadful that's about to happen to somebody. You know, the writing's on the wall, you know. There's been one too many parties at Downing Street. The writing's on the wall. Let's not get political. Anyway, before we um, delve into um, today's story, 
We're going to have a very quick recap of where we're up to. We're doing this series, Daniel, we've called it Lessons from uh, Life in Exile. And in previous weeks, um, Joe has looked at how Daniel and his three friends uh, came from Jerusalem. They were captured, they were taken to live in Babylon in a foreign land, and they were exiled there. And it was all about how Daniel met the challenges of of being isolated, um, of integration with a a new culture, um, and identification with all uh, things new, as well as looking at uh, what qualities Daniel might have um, as an inspirational leader. He looked at how Daniel engaged with the foreign culture that he'd uh, found himself in. And then last uh, week, Dan looked at how Daniel's characteristic of standing up against injustice played itself out. So this week we move into chapter 5 um, of Daniel, and this is, uh, continues the story of his exile living. And today we've got a story about a city under siege, drunken parties, unexpected gate crashes, the assassination of a ruler and the downfall of an empire, and quite possibly, if you listen carefully, the creation of the world's very first escape room. Keep your eyes open for that one. And we're going to try and unpick all of that in the next 20 minutes or so. So buckle up. Here we go. Now, the very first words that, we, uh, that Phil read to us, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet. Now, hold on, I hear you say, uh, for those of you who have been paying attention over the last four or five weeks, who is this guy, Belshazzar? Because I thought the king that we'd been talking about with Daniel was called Nebuchadnezzar, and you would be right. Right up until the end of chapter four, which unfortunately we skipped last week, but we are going to come back to it later today, so you're not going to completely miss it. Nebuchadnezzar was king, right up until the end of chapter four, until this story starts. And suddenly we have King Belshazzar. So who is Belshazzar and where on earth did he come from? Quick history lesson. Don't fall asleep here. Pinch yourself. Here we go. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar. So he was the king that we've had so far, been with Daniel, up to the end of chapter 4. He reigned for about 43 years and then he died. Then he was succeeded by a guy called Evil Merodach. Now please, parents, if you're going to name your kids... You name them Evil Merodach, they haven't got a lot going for them really in life. And to be fair, he lasted two years and apparently his reign was so licentious and arbitrary that he got assassinated by his brother-in-law called Neriglasa. Now Neriglasa ruled for four years, he died a natural death, people didn't live long in those days. And then his son, a name I'm not even going to try and pronounce because it's just got syllables in the wrong place there. And he lasted for nine months. And he was apparently quite a young guy. He was probably a teenager or a very, very young man. And he, unfortunately, was assassinated by a group of conspirators led by, wait for it, a guy called Belshazzar. However, Belshazzar didn't become king at that point. His father became king. Nabonidus became king. And we know that. A lot of history says Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. So where does Belshazzar come from? Well, Nabonidus, at this point in time, when we come to this story, is away in a different part of the world. He's in Assyria, probably fighting the Medo-Persians in the war, and he puts his son uh, in charge in Babylon as kind of king regent, essentially, uh, in there. And that's how we end up with Belshazzar in there. And if you want to know more about this, 
we know about it because apparently recently we dug up a big clay cylinder in that part of the ancient Near East, and it, it was called Nabonidus' Cylinder, and it tells the story of all this happening, and we found out why Belshazzar actually uh, became king there. It's in the British Museum if you want to go and see it, if that's what floats your boat. Not for me, but there we go. Okay, so now we know who Belshazzar was, we're going to look at what this story can teach us about being faithful and fruitful in unfamiliar times. And like all good sermons, we have got three points, and they all begin with the same letter. Usually it's pretty arbitrary, but hopefully they make sense this time. They are priorities, perseverance, and pride. So our first one here, priorities. First four verses. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles. He drank wine with them. While he was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, when he says his father, uh, those sort of language actually means someone who was, came before him uh, on the thrones. It wasn't his actual father in here, but someone who'd been king before him, um, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from these goblets. They brought them in, um, the ones that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, the, one that, the ones that were holy to God, and the kings and the nobles and everybody drank from them, and they prayed the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Before we go on, we need to know something else about this party. Because in and of itself, big party, hey ho we read about quite a lot of those in the Bible. Why was this one special? Well, actually, as this party was going on, the Medo-Persian army, which had been battling the Babylonian army and basically defeated them in all the areas around, was at the very gates of the city. They were standing at the gates and they were besieging Babylon as this party was going on. Basically, it was the last stand within Babylon and Belshazzar is throwing this massive party. Why is he? Who knows? Maybe it's a sign of defiance. We know that Babylon had great big, thick, strong, high walls and guard towers, maybe he thought he was very safe. Maybe it's a political thing, maybe he thought, well, maybe the Medo-Persian army will just send a diplomatic delegation and will become a vassal state or something like that, so I actually need my lords, you know, around me to still support me, so I'll throw this big party for them. Um, or maybe he was just in denial, like we know small children are when they go, la, 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 I can't see you, you can't see me, you know, maybe it's that. Who knows? Anyway, whatever the reason, he's throwing this huge drunken party. And no one, no doubt, under the influence of alcohol, he suddenly has a great fun idea. He has a great wheeze. I know what we'll do. We'll bring out the gold and the silver goblets, the ones that Nebuchadnezzar took from um, the God of the Hebrews, from their temple. Let's come out and let's drink wine from them and let's toast our gods. Um, and he thinks he's having a great old time. But he didn't realize he was playing with fire when he brought these sacred vessels out. Remember that the, the God of Israel had chosen different people and different objects at moments in time um, to be set apart and to be uh, called holy, essentially, for, for their special use. So when Belshazzar abused these vessels, which had been dedicated um, to God's use, he was parading them at his drunken orgy and toasting in his own gods, and he was essentially declaring how much he despised the God of Israel and was challenging him. And it turns out to be not the wisest thing he'd ever done. Is there something that we can perhaps learn from Belshazzar's behavior? Well, we come to our first point here, our priorities. 
Now, here at All Souls, we don't tend to have physical items that we attach a particular holy significance to. I know some denominations do and some churches do. We don't tend to here. Although, I'm pretty sure that the, the plate and the cups that we use at communion, I'm sure that Joe hasn't taken them on holiday and is drinking Coke and eating pizza off them. Although I don't think he has. No, they're still there. It's okay. He hasn't. That's fine. But we do have other things that God has provided with us with to help us uh, build our relationship with him and to point us towards him, sometimes called means of grace, if you will. And the question is, how do we prioritize these things in our life? I'm not going to go into it in depth, but one of them uh, that we have is the Word of God, the Bible. How do we treat the Bible? What priority do we put it in our lives? And I'm not talking about the physical object, um, which nowadays, of course, we've got Bibles on our phones and all sorts of things, so perhaps we don't use the paper and ink version quite as much. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the words themselves, God's words in the Bible that are living and active and sharp and penetrating that are said to be a lamp and a light, a roadmap for us in our lives, and ultimately a way of salvation. Now, I'm sure that we're not in danger of abusing the Bible and the Word of God in the same way that Belshazzar Belshazzar did with God's holy vessels. But I think it can be a wake-up call to remind ourselves that we should be careful not to resign the Bible to just being another book on the bookshelf, or perhaps a nice keepsake that we give to a child when they're baptized, or simply a book that we dig out the odd verse every now and again to post as an inspirational Instagram meme. And that's why here we put a great emphasis each Sunday on making sure that we open up God's Word and we see what God has to say to us through it. And why we've committed to doing this during Lent uh, later on, and we'll talk about um, things that are happening during Lent here in some groups to go on. We're committed for a couple of those groups to be looking um, at God's Word together. So let's make sure we put God's Word in the right priority in our life. Secondly, we come on to perseverance um, from verses um, 5 onwards. You know, by this time, the party is in full swing, and suddenly there's a gate crasher, and the party comes to an abrupt standstill. You could almost hear, if you were watching this as a movie, you can almost hear the needle scratching across the record as the music um, stops, and all eyes turn to this finger that's writing in huge letters on the side of the great hall where they're having this party. You know, one of the things I like to do in my spare time with some of my friends is visit escape rooms. Now, I don't know if you've ever come across these before. If you haven't come across these before, it's basically you go to a location somewhere with some of your friends and some of your family, four or five of you, and uh, you essentially get locked in 
a room together, and the idea is you have about an hour and you have to escape from this room. And the way that you do it is that you solve puzzles and riddles that are hidden in pieces of furniture and in books and in various places, and you have to unlock padlocks and find new things, and eventually, hopefully, you find your way out of the room at the end of it. And one of kind of the favorite things that escape rooms often do is they provide you with a, a UV torch or a, a black light, if you're one of our American friends, and you sort of dim the lights and then you shine this UV torch back, and more often than not, on the wall somewhere, there's some letters or there's a puzzle or there's an answer to something or other, and you have to find these on the wall uh, and, and see what they are and write them down and work out what they mean. And I think this was a little bit like this. It was probably a little bit more terrifying than an escape room, to be honest with you, because Belshazzar starts, his knees start knocking, he turns pale, he turns white, he hasn't got a clue what's going on. And he calls his enchanters and his astrologers and his diviners, all his kind of wise men to come in. Despite a huge bribe, they can't tell what's going on. They can't tell what this writing uh, means to him. And then all, all of a sudden, a voice of, of sanity and soberness comes on proceedings. As uh, It says in the, the queen, it's probably the queen, queen mother, essentially. So she was probably um, quite old by this point. She enters the great hall and she tells Belshazzar, in quite glowing terms and in quite a respectful way about this guy called um, Daniel. The fact that she even used his name, Daniel, which was his Hebrew name rather than Belteshazzar, not to be confused with Belshazzar, she used his Hebrew name, Daniel, which shows an element of respect for where he'd been. And she basically says, there's this guy in the kingdom and he'll be able to interpret it for you. And this is where we come to our, our second point, perseverance. There's likely been probably about 25 years between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, where we come to today. And we don't know what's been going on with Daniel during this time, but it appears he no longer holds such a prominent role in the Babylonian society as he did before. However, we do know that he was remembered, because that's what the Queen Mother comes in and says. She recounts all the things that he did before because of his actions in the past. Now, I got a, I got a WhatsApp message from, um, from someone the other day, a friend of mine I don't see particularly that often, doesn't live near here, and it was really out of the blue. And I'll read out what he said to me. He said, um, I just want to remind you that you and Rach, Rach is my wife, uh, your friendship was really instrumental in getting me back to church and finding Christ again after we lost our first baby 15 years ago. And that rather choked me up, I have to say, when it, when it came out of the blue. I wasn't expecting that at all. Um, and I'd completely forgotten. We hadn't done anything particularly special. I don't remember talking to him about his faith or coming to church or anything like that. Um, I think at the time we just got alongside them um, and tried to be good friends with them. And I'm not mentioning that to big myself up in any way at all, but hopefully as an encouragement to all of us that we don't know how the simplest of actions that we do at any point in our life are going to have lasting effects and lasting consequences in the life of somebody else. Daniel had lasting consequences from the actions that he had earlier in his life, and now he was remembered. We also know that 
Daniel was patiently and faithfully walking with God during this time, uh, this 20-odd years. We know this because, as we're about to see, God gives him the wisdom to interpret the writing that's on the wall. He must have still been walking close with God and his relationship with him. And sometimes it might feel that within our lives we sort of enter kind of fallow periods of time. Maybe nothing much seems to be happening spiritually in our lives and in those around us. Maybe God doesn't appear to be doing anything amazing at that moment. But it's at times like this that God calls us to persevere. God calls us to be faithful, to continue walking with him, to continue building our relationship with him, to continue persevering in prayer. Because that brings us to the third thing we know about Daniel. He was ready for action. Daniel was on the scene. He may not have had a prominent place in society anymore. He certainly wasn't invited to the party. But he was on hand pretty quickly to be able to react when the time was right, when he was called on. And Joe looked at this in a previous talk. How do we live faithfully in our cultural landscape? Do we separate and disengage or do we stay and do we mix with those around us? And if we stay, do we blend in with society or do we stand out in some way? Daniel was still there. He was somewhere that he could make a difference. He was ready for God's call on his life. If we understand the culture that we're in, if we understand what makes people tick, what gives people meaning, what challenges they have to face, then we're in a position to bring the love and the grace of God into their lives when the time comes. And now our final P, pride. Now verses 18 to 23, I told you we'd get there eventually, essentially recount the happenings of chapter 4, which is the chapter that we missed out. Um, You see, in that chapter, we find that Nebuchadnezzar was suffering incredibly from pride. He thought he was the bee's knees, his empire was the bee's knees, it was all about him. Daniel had to come and help him out because he'd had a dream. Yeah, we did have him having a dream back in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar seemed to be dreaming all the time and never knew what these dreams meant. So Daniel got rolled out again to come and interpret this dream for him and tell him that God was going to strip away all his royal authority because of his pride. And this happened. And Nebuchadnezzar ends up suffering what we would describe today as quite a serious mental illness. You remember back in the reading, it talks about him becoming like a beast of the field and out wandering about and eating grass uh, and that kind of stuff. Until he is eventually humbled, he eventually realizes what he's done. And he actually glorifies God and he acknowledges him and his kingdom was restored as a result. However, we've now got Belshazzar and despite having this warning from history, he would have known very well about Nebuchadnezzar and what had happened to him. Belshazzar still shows extreme arrogance and pride in himself and in his empire and this was to be his downfall. And now Daniel actually gets to the crux of the matter and he interprets the writing on the wall. Mine, mine, tekel, pasin, which essentially means number, number, weight, 
divine. There's actually quite a lot of clever um, word plays. It's not just kind of single words. They actually mean several different things, and it's quite clever, and there's no time to go into it now. But if you're into that kind of stuff, look up. It's some quite clever word play in there. Essentially, Daniel explained that God had numbered Belshazzar's kingdom, and he'd finished it. He'd been weighed in the balance, and he'd been found light. He'd been found wanting. And the end result, that his kingdom was going to be divided, and it was going to be given to the Medes and the Persians. And this got fulfilled immediately. We read the Medo-Persian army. We know they broke into the city that night. They assassinated Belshazzar. And his pride had literally come before his fall, which is another saying that comes straight out of the Bible. But pride can be a really nuanced thing, but it can affect so many areas of our life. You know, pride is the root of all inferiority because it's self-absorbed. How do I look to others? I think pride is the basis in our postmodern world for boredom and for cynicism. Often we can be perhaps too proud to let ourselves enjoy the simpler pleasures of life. Maybe we're too sophisticated for that. We're too proud. It can be the root of unresolved guilt. It's an inability to accept forgiveness from others and perhaps even from God because we feel we should somehow earn it. Pride leads us to not confess when we're wrong and to repent. Why do I not say sorry to my wife more often? It's because I'm proud and it's because I don't want to admit when I'm wrong. Why does she not say sorry to me? Because she's never wrong, apparently, but there we go. Pride is the basis for so many difficulties in our world. It's the basis for nationalism, for war, for tribalism, for racism. The list goes on. But you know, in biblical terms, pride is essentially not seeing that absolutely everything we have is a gift of grace. I'll say that again. In spiritual terms, pride is not seeing that absolutely everything we have is a gift of grace. Pride is essentially saying of our own life, I've earned it. And if I haven't got it, well, I'm owed it. When everything actually we have is ultimately a gift, and we would say a gift from God. After all, did we choose where we were born? When we were born? Into which family? Which physical characteristics we have? Which mental characteristics we have? I'm sure that if I'd been born into a rural province in northern Ethiopia in 1983 at the height of the famine, I probably wouldn't be standing here today. The fact that I wasn't was nothing to do with me. The Bible tells us that everything that we have is gift, all part of God's amazing grace. And when we don't acknowledge that, that's essentially pride. And it's true that what we do with that gift that God provides to us can be up to us. And many of us here have have studied intently, we've worked hard, we've made wise choices of what to do with the resources at our disposal. 
and that's called good stewardship, and Jesus talks about that in the New Testament as well. But ultimately, we have to recognize that all that we have been given in the first place is gift from God. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing always to accept. And it goes against most of what our secular and our capitalist culture is shouting at us uh, most of the time on a daily basis. But I think when we do learn to accept that, then we're making giant strides down the road to being the opposite of proud. And that's having some humility. And C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, A Mere Christianity, this about pride and this about humility. And just um, forgive the gender-specific language. It was written in the 1940s, so please take this as more inclusive than what it sounds. C.S. Lewis said, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that. Of course, he is a nobody. Probably all of you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him at all, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. Jesus said, he who humbles himself will be exalted, and he who exalts himself will be humbled. So may it be through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we'll increasingly recognize that all we have, it all comes as a free gift from God and that we'll become people of humility as we seek to live for him on a day-by-day basis. Let's pray.